right welcome everybody to the uh school of christ cmi school of christ session thanks for uh tuning in on uh, youtube and the cmintonet web page appreciate you being there and listening to these sessions it's a blessing to know that you're out there please contact us by email uh, you can contact me personally uh, ravenbird at gmail.com or you can uh, send it to the bible research center cmibrc at yahoo.com and um, i think that's it yeah yahoo.com and uh, we'll be glad to get back with you, answer questions, or just give you information. Uh, let me also tell you, pull this up real fast. If you are thinking about considering coming, oops, coming to our upcoming conference, in June, I want to give you those dates just so you can make plans appropriately. Um, we always do it on the, let's see, this is June, the last full week um, of June, which will be the 21st through the 25th of June, 21st through the 25th of June. Um, uh, we do that, uh, every year, always the last full week, which means it's the full week where it's still in the month of June. It doesn't go over from one month to another. So the 21st through the 25th. And normally what we do is we have kind of a get together on Monday night. Uh, no, no real session. We get together, have food and, and just mingle and meet and uh, have fellowship. And then on Tuesday mornings, the actual teaching sessions begin. So if you're considering coming this year with uh, everything kind of getting back to normal to some degree, um, we would love to have you. We'll have information. We'll send it out probably by email and have some information out there where you can stay. Uh, we thought we would have another place uh, this year to stay, but I think with COVID, uh, it kind of delayed everything but anyway you can you can send us uh emails asking that information or we'll go ahead and send them out uh as we get closer to the time uh, basically there's not many options some you know but we'll let you know what they are but again the 21st through the 25th of june will be the week of the bible conference this year so if you're wanting to be there. Those are the dates and you can make your plans. So, uh, yeah. All right. So this is, um, Wednesday. I am, uh, coming off the heels of a pretty, uh, week of, uh, or a week of, uh, fighting skunks, <laughs> fighting skunks in my yard, trying to get under my house. One actually succeeded and uh, i've had a time uh, it involved 50 pounds of concrete and a shovel and uh, several other things and last night i finally won a small battle in the war and trapped 
These are live traps. Trap two skunk uh, over the night into the morning, I guess. And uh, one under the house, I trapped him, have him out. He's out there in the trap. We'll be setting him free several miles away from the house um, here shortly. And there's another in the front of the house in a cage. So they will be let go, but uh, hopefully they will be away from my area and out in the woods away from everybody uh, pretty soon. So pray for me as I fight skunk. They're, they're something. All right, guys. Uh, today we're going to continue on our look. Uh, the same thing we've been looking at for a little while now. And that is the Sermon on the Mount the Beatitudes, however you want to uh, title it. But we're in verse 8 of Matthew 5, and uh, last session we dealt with uh, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, and and I think tried, in, well, tried, uh, hopefully succeeded in some way, to clarify the um, the way that verse should be understood. Because again, many of these, uh, many of these parts of this sermon, the way they are written in the way they are interpreted normally can give us an under, give us a mindset that our salvation, what Jesus, what God demands of us is basically a, uh, transactionary or transactional salvation meaning if we do our part god does his if we do what we're supposed to do he'll do what he's supposed to do and uh, i'm telling you we better we better <laughs> most assuredly be happy that that is not the case god works according to the love and mercy that he is he works in us because he understands that we are not able to reciprocate his kindness. We are not able to reciprocate his mercy and love. He works in us knowing that we are weak vessels made of earth and that we are in absolute perpetual need of his mercy. And we are in perpetual need of every spiritual attribute to be a function of Christ in us because it will never be a function of us. I'll promise you that. And God knows that. And that's the beauty of it. I pray a lot of times thanking God that his dealing with us all is in the kindness of his grace instead of upon the basis of our efforts because no matter how deluded or deceived or arrogant we may be, um, we do not meet the standard that we think we may, or we have to understand that we don't and just try to put on a good, put on a good, uh, appearance, but Either way, thank God that he works according to mercy toward us and grace toward us. And um, he has 
performed in us a reality that we could not perform and never could or can, uh, whether before Christ or after, uh, this is a, this is a soul, my soul, your soul are in constant need of his exertion of mercy just to exist in the sight of God. Because again, it's not us existing in the sight of God. It is the one his beloved standing there in the sight of God as our life unto God, as the one who satisfies God and who abides in our soul as that satisfaction. And there's, there's the beauty and thank God for that. All right. So here's verse eight, Matthew chapter five, and this is another one. Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. This verse has been so falsely understood, demanding from believers, demanding from Christians, a perfection, a purity of heart. Now listen to the word there, pure in heart. Listen to that pure in heart, heart. The scripture itself con uh, con contrasts two different realms in which God looks and man looks. Man looks at the outward, the appearance. God looks on the heart because that's where any, uh, some would say true religion, if you want to call it, that's where reality is found. Never in the externals, never in the appearances because appearances can be manipulated. The heart cannot. The heart is either, either deceitful and evil because it is in Christ, or we have a new heart by a work of God called new birth. That's when a right heart comes in. That's when uh, there is a change of the heart. There is, uh, I didn't, uh, I don't think I, yeah, let's see. There's a. Oh, let me get. Hold on just a second. I don't know. I don't think I read. Oh, I know I did. I read this in a podcast recently and a Zoom call. But. I did not read it on these sessions. So I want to read something to you. Um, if I can find it. This is right. I thought it was Life in Christ Jesus by John Knox, but it's not. It's uh, it's a book called The Indwelling Christ by um, Harmon Baldwin. I know nothing about Harmon Baldwin. I haven't even taken the time to do much research on him. I bought this book years ago and read it. Um, I had forgotten a lot of it. But I, um, I was uh, intrigued. I, was, I looked I looked through it again a couple weeks ago while I was snowed in and I was just reading through it again and this portion of it which will take in what we're going to say um, of this idea that we have about 
perfection and and a and a real the real change of heart coming in at new birth because there's such a misunderstanding of the sufficiency of our beginning where we start if you haven't heard the podcast in a while go i think it's podcast 146 it's episode 146 it just went up today on uh what is this the second this is the third third of march go there and listen to that it's about where we begin it's about the sufficiency of where we start and um but I want to read you something uh, written here. This is a chapter uh, 13 of his book, uh, The Indwelling Christ. I'm not going to read the whole thing, but there's a portion here. Um, it says, in the whole realm of spiritual investigation, there is not a more important subject than that of the new birth. And then he goes on and talks about how um, there is nothing that the enemy of the souls attacks with fiercer hatred and with a more determined effort than the new birth, realizing as he does that the un to undermine the structure, that foundation that holds everything up is one of the surest methods to pursue its overthrow or destruction. He aims his heaviest assaults right against the basal structure of a Christian's experience, thus attempting to bring the possibility of an actual change of heart into disrepute and to set persons to going the rounds of religious duties from force instead of from an inherent inclination, meaning out of obligation instead of out of uh, the automatic working of God or the inherent uh, nature of God in us. This is important to understand. Again, I, I'm not endorsing the book or the author. I don't know. That part is significant because we need to understand the onslaught of the enemy, which is also the basically the root of the onslaught of so many who preach the gospel quote unquote because this is exactly what we do when we read pure in heart and we don't emphasize on in heart it's or even even so you know most people don't understand that internal working of god in salvation Pure in heart is so many times measured by pure in external actions, perfect adherence to whatever. We look at the outward to define the nature and the, the, the condition of the heart when God only looks at the heart to affirm the condition of the heart. See, that's that makes more sense, right? To understand the internal, you look internal. To understand most Christians and religious people, to understand the internal, they look at the external, and that is totally wrong. But so many still interpret this by looking at the external to prove whether you qualify for this next step, which is seeing God. 
But this is the issue before us. That is a means, and that whole ideology, which people call the gospel, is an undermining of the sufficiency of the new birth, of salvation given of God by the grace of God. Because therein is given to us a true basis and foundation upon which to stand, unmovable, unshakable. Nothing can move that rock. And we've substituted the rock for sand. We've given way to just a, a movable, shakable, wash awayable, <laughs> if that's a way to say it, foundation. And we bring into question, and this is what so many do. And that's why this is so misunderstood. We call into question by those things, the actual uh, probability that there could actually be a true change of heart. We think change of heart is the same as change of habit, but it's not. Anybody can change a habit through whatever uh, willpower or, or, uh, you know, medical means or counseling, you can change a habit. It may take you time, but it can be done. But the change of heart is only a divine work. It can only be done through God himself. It's That's a matter of divine power and work. You can't equate heart with habit. You cannot equate life with lifestyle. You understand? And that idea that the change of heart has to be proven by change of habit, of course, that will come, at, but the one does not equate the other. The one may happen way before the other even starts to happen, and it does. And the one... You know, the change of heart will come as we grow in the understanding that the change of lifestyle, habit, or whatever will come or may not. But is he sufficient in the heart? That's the question. Purity of heart. To measure the thing from external viewpoint instead of God's internal viewpoint is to cast doubt and put shadows on the sufficiency of the internal work where a true, once and for all, divinely wrought change of heart, change of condition came about and happened. And that happened by the new birth. That happened the moment Christ came and dwelt in the soul. Why? Because a, because in a fountain, you can't have sweet and bitter. Tree cannot produce bad and good fruit. See what I'm saying? Those are things that declare the source of the matter determines the whole of the matter. There's only one reality that can dwell in the vessel at one time. Both cannot dwell in the same vessel. So when he comes in, he's not, he doesn't have his hammer and saw trying to get as much of the evil heart out of us. No, his coming in is that once and for all change of heart. It's a change of the inner man. It's him coming to take residence in a soul. And in so doing, he changes the whole inner parts. Period. 
End of sentence. No conditions. Again, your and my inclination to try to determine the heart condition by the habits we have or do not have is wrong and it misses the whole point of this heart condition, the purity of heart. It, it misses it altogether because you're not looking at the heart. So let me read this from the Jameson Fawcett and Brown commentary here. Um, he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God here too. We're on old Testament ground. There, the difference between outward and inward purity and the acceptable of the latter only in the sight of God is elsewhere taught, um, is everywhere taught, I'm sorry. And he gives, he gives uh, some verses here, but he says, oh, what, with what grand simplicity, brevity, and power is this great fundamental truth expressed? And in what striking contrast would such teaching appear to that which was then concurrent, in which exclusive attention was paid to ceremonial purification and external morality? That's still how we interpret this verse, by looking at ceremonial purity and external morality, habits, and lifestyle. And we say, that determines whether you're pure in heart. But this man... Jameson Fawcett Brown, this commentary beautifully shows that you can go through the Old Testament and see where God was always after the inward grasping of reality, not just forms, fashions, ceremonies, and, and external moralities. Their heart is far from me. See, <coughs> verse eight is not talking about people that's finally living right according to the standards of external sight. It's about the ones who have the right life. The daily habits and lifestyle will come as we grow in understanding. That's a work of God. That's not, that's higher than our pay grade boys and girls. That's not something we should involve ourselves in. We should involve ourselves in come to Christ, receive him and learn of him. That's it. That's as far as it goes. We're not here to call people to heaven or hell. That's not us. That's not our place. But we so many times get it confused and we, we think ceremonial purity, external morality equals purity of heart. And I'm telling you, it doesn't far from it, far from it pretense and appearances and a show of wisdom, as he says in Colossians, can, can convince people that there's purity of heart when there's only purity of acts and deeds. And that's not even pure because the source has to be pure. The root must be holy for the whole thing to be holy. The source determines it. That's why it's important when you read this to read every word and consider it pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart. He's not here saying, go out and be pure. Go out and be as pure outwardly as you can. No, he's talking to a people again, inviting them to receive inwardly what they have in 
what they have tried to do outwardly. He's coming as the kingdom. He's coming as the messianic fulfillment unto them and saying, come to me and you shall be blessed because you shall receive the purity in the heart that you've tried to perform and achieve and acquire by external works of the law. I will bring you to the purity you could never bring yourself to. And you shall have that blessing. There's all spiritual blessings. This is part of it. That's, that's part of it. It's a heart that has been sprinkled from an evil conscience. Yes, we grow in that understanding, of course. But it starts and continues as a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart. Acts chapter 15, this is when they're having the debate whether they should put the restrictions of the law upon Gentiles. And Peter stands up and says, he says a lot of things, but here in verse 8, Acts chapter 15, he says, in God who knows the hearts. See, even the church folk here in Acts 15, believers, Christians, those first leaders of the, of the church were calling into question the Gentiles, because they, they did not adhere to the external works in which the Jews found righteousness or purity. And Peter stands up, who at one time was rebuked by Paul because of the same thing. I'm sure this was before, maybe, I don't know. But the timing seems to be. But he very plainly says this, God, who didn't look at the externals and didn't say, oh, that's a Gentile. I can't deal with them. That's, that's not a Jew. I can't deal with them. God know, who knows the hearts bear them witness by giving them the Holy Ghost, even as he did to us. And he put no difference between us and them by doing what? By, by doing what, Peter? Purifying their hearts by faith. What does that mean? They believed him and received him by faith. Therefore, their hearts were pure, purified. And God knows that heart. God knows the heart that he has purified and he he sealed that with the, he, he brought that about with giving them the Holy ghost. He brought their hearts to purity by their faith that he had given them. It's the gift of faith. And he worked in them purifying their hearts. So now those of us who have went through the same thing, same thing, Peter, is confronted by Paul in Galatians chapter two, even we have received him so that we could be righteous because we knew no works of the law could do it. It's the same thing. We received him to have a heart that is pure and without defect and without wickedness. Why? Because we realize no efforts of the law could do it or accomplish that. 
So God did this, making no difference between the Jew and the Gentile who believed because he had purified their hearts by faith. Notice what he does not do. He does not pick out individuals and say, they're pure, they're not, they're pure, they're not. No, he's speaking as a conclusive reality that is that is wrought of God entirely to all who have believed by faith. All who have believed. He is not speaking about a process of purification, an asceticism type doctrine that purifies us so that finally, in such a state of purity, we can finally see God. See, that type of thing will drive you crazy. That type of thing will run you ragged. That type of thing will make you give up. Or it will exalt you to a point where you believe that you have achieved something and you will live in the self-delusion and a self-righteousness. Now, I'm telling you, not a process, but a person determines the purity of a heart. He's speaking of the purity of a heart for those who have believed and received this man who is perfect and pure and holy that high priest that we we needed remember hebrews higher than the heavens separate from sinners holy perfect that's who we needed that's who we have john chapter 3 verse 3 this is this is the where the purity of heart starts remember if he has a pure heart, he shall see God. John 3, 3, Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Revelation chapter 22, verses 3 through 5. Any curse there shall not be any more, and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and his servants shall serve him. It is a shame that we have pushed this off into the future and not realize this is the reality of a new creation where the old heaven and the earth have passed away and the new heaven and the new earth is now come. In verse four, and they shall see his face and his name is upon, is upon their foreheads. Not shall be at some point, is upon their foreheads. And night shall not be there they shall have no need of a lamp or light of a sun because the Lord gives them light and they shall reign to the ages of the ages forever. This is the purity of the heart. This is, they shall see God when, when the new creation comes, when he's on his throne, this is a reality of salvation, of being the body of Christ, the bride of Christ, married to him, found in him. Uh, now this, uh, next commentary is from Adam Clark. I, I can't remember exactly what it said here, but, um, I, I highlighted, I think I appreciate it. It says here, uh, Matthew five, eight, pure in heart in opposition to the Pharisees who affected outward purity while their hearts were full of corruption and defilement. A principal part of the Jewish religion consisted in outward washings and cleansings, on this ground, they expected to see or enjoy eternal glory or God, 
But Christ here shows that a purification of the heart from all vile affections and desires is essentially requisite in order to enter the kingdom. He whose soul is not delivered from all sin. Listen to this. He whose soul is not delivered from all sin through the blood of the covenant can have no hope of ever being with God. What a pity. Read this and consider the mindset of so many that believe that this is talking about how you live outwardly that measures and defines your soul's, your heart's purity. Because they're trying to say your deeds determine it. And I'm telling you, it doesn't because, listen to this, if your soul is not delivered from all sin, again, soul, He's not talking about your hands, your feet, your eyes. Notice we're in Matthew five, where he talks to them and says, listen, the whole reality of the law is not don't do it. It's even if you consider it with your mind or in your heart, it's done already. Are you doing, is, is that us? Is that possible? Where the thought doesn't even enter our mind? Now we're talking about purity of heart. Try your best. Beat yourself with whips. I don't care. You'll never get that deep where the soul doesn't consider, where the heart doesn't consider. What has to happen for that to be so? He has to live in it and bring about the entire change of a new heart, a new soul determined in and by him and him alone. His nature, his character, determining the condition, not you at all, because this takes it far deeper than actions and even a brain thinking something. That's not what it's about. It's about a, a heart that is either, either pure from delivered, pure out of the reach, outside of the reach of sin and corruption altogether or not. Now, put an external measurement on that and call me. Because you know good and well, those of you who think you've reached that, you know you haven't. And you know you can't. Therefore, we must be like Paul. Even we had to believe upon him, have confidence that he is sufficient where we know we're not. Now, the phrase shall see God here, according to Adam Clark is a Hebraism or a Jewish saying, which signifies to possess God and enjoy his felicity as seeing a thing was used among the Hebrews for enjoying it in possessing it through enjoyment. See, except a man be born again, he goes on and explains, he cannot see the kingdom or enjoy the kingdom of God. Um, 
from Matthew Henry. He says, true religion consists in heart purity. Those who are inwardly pure is the, is the meaning here, inwardly pure. If you measure the one by the other, you miss the whole thing. If you measure the internal by Christ or Adam, then you understand what's making that change, Christ dwelling in the soul or not. When he's in the soul, the heart is pure because it's a new heart that he defines and that he is. And in that heart is written the law of God, the law fulfilled. The law, not only as demands, but that law as the indwelling life that fulfills every demand. See that? Now, let's uh, go on here and, and define this pure in heart. Let's turn to uh, Psalms chapter, let's, Psalms 24. Psalms. Yeah, Psalms 24, verse 3 and verse 4. Verse 3 says, Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? You see, the question here, and this is uh, some James and Fawcett and Brown thoughts, commentaries. He says, the question serves to awaken the worshiper to penetrate more deeply than the outward pomp which attended the ascending of the ark and to consider seriously and personally what are the inward requisites for true fellowship with such an almighty and sovereign God in his house here and forever. Who shall ascend into this place? Who shall stand who shall stand? The word literally stand means to arise or rise up, to stand as a minister in, in attending in the sovereign courts of God. And he very astutely gives the proper commentary or the proper reference in scripture, Hebrews 9.24, who now appears in the presence of God for us. Who shall stand? Who shall ascend and stand in the holiest of all before God. This is the question, right? And for us to try to answer that question, looking at ourselves is nothing different than Korah and the rebellion of Korah. In Psalms 15, it says basically the same thought, and it says to ascend here implies to stand permanently and continually in the presence of God. Who is it that shall stand? Who defines that? Who possibly can it be to put a face on that who that can stand there permanently and continually in the presence of God? It's, it's defined and, 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 and clarified in the next verse, verse four. He that hath clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to vanity, 
nor sworn deceitfully. Christ alone, again, I don't just want to give you my thoughts. This is from Jameson Fawcett Brown. Christ alone ascended by right of inherent or indwelling purity. We ascend, I say risen with him, only by virtue of his imputed purity and righteousness. None are accounted righteous whose hearts are not purified by faith. You see that? None are accounted righteous whose hearts are not purified by faith. Remember, Christ has made unto us righteousness and sanctification. Remember what Jesus says to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. He says, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter. There's religion. There's the desires of men to be seen of men. Who cares what God sees? Right? That doesn't seem to determine much for us. But we want men to be able to look at us and judge us as holy when men don't even have the true measure of holy. God does. God sees that internally or he doesn't. It's either in you or not. That means Christ is either there or he isn't. The purity is defined right there by presence of one man or not. The one who stands holy before God permanently with pure hands and a clean, clean hands and a pure heart. There's the one with a pure heart and the pure in heart referring to us is those who's, who are now indwelt by the one who is of pure heart. And he stands there in the sight of God, determining that reality for us. It's not demanded of us. It is done for us by the indwelling presence of Christ. So they make clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within, here's where it all is determined. Within, they are full of extortion and excess. Blind Pharisees cleanse first that which is within the cup and the platter. And the outside may be clean also. And if you read it, it means if this happens, the other is. Again, to be able to look at it and point at it and say, yeah, there's an improvement there. That's, that may take time, but there's no improvement internally. It's a immediate once and for all act. Remember the woman healed with the issue of blood. It says her, which speaks of salvation of the unclean of the ceremonial, uh, unclean, which is all men, all sinners who are internally corrupt. Very beautifully, it says immediately it was healed. And she knew immediately she was healed. It says that two or three times. Because it, it wants to get the point across that this was not a process. This is an immediate thing. Just a moment. It happens in a moment, in one touch. Cleanse first. See, that our focus needs to be on the first things. Because that's where everything is. 
That's where the whole measure is found. That's where the real structure of the thing is found. We always jump to the next things. There's no next thing. The first thing determines all things. First, clean the inside of the cup and platter so that the outside may be clean also. Now, Romans, uh, I mean, sorry, Matthew chapter 23 goes on and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you're like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but within are full of dead men's bones. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous unto me and are pure, but within you're full of hypocrisy and iniquity. The word here, iniquity, is what? Impurity. Impure. Impure and unclean. That's why it was about the heart here. That's why Jesus is here offering to the Pharisees and to all who are there, come to me. I am the answer to this. You who are poor in spirit, you who are meek and lowly and of no account, you who are hungering and thirsting for something that you cannot get by the law, come and I will give it. I will bless you with every spiritual reality that was promised in the, mess, the, the coming of the Messiah because that's who I am. See, unfortunately, we have placed the cart before the horse in these, in most of these cases, we're told our hearts must be in such a state of purity and undefilement before we can see or enjoy God. And that is exactly true. But the question is when, and in what manner is that state of purity reached? We believe that being pure is the result of effort, zealous actions, uh, ceremonial moralities. And that all comes subsequent to being in Christ. Are we told that even the seeing of Christ will bring our souls to some state of purity because the things of corruption are put away by the seeing of him? No, the pure in heart speaks of those who by new birth, by, because it's the same, by the sanctifying work of an internal circumcision have had such corruption and sin entirely cut away and cut off. We're dead to it. That's how pure in heart it is. The heart is dead to the soul is removed, circumcised from it, dead to it. And in that case, we are able to internally enjoy the God of our salvation with a clear conscience and no condemnation because we're able to see and enjoy Reality, because now we understand reality is only known in the face of the one who ensures salvation's perfection and the purity of our heart. And as we go forward in this sermon, we'll see how the Messiah who comes not to destroy the law or its intention, but to fulfill its intention will bring all that which men have boasted in outwardly and show that it was never realized outwardly 
It was never true outwardly because it never spoke of something outwardly. It was a matter of heart. That's why he says, if you, if it's, if it's, if you look at a woman in lust, you've done it. You've committed adultery already in your heart. If you say fool to your brother or you're angry with a brother, you've already committed murder in the heart. Cause we're talking about something deep here, something that's, can only be changed by a divine work. We can't get that deep. We always seem to try to determine the nature of the heart's condition with reference to the works that are observed outwardly. God, once again, let me end it by saying this. God measures the heart's condition of purity and holiness with reference to only the one who abides in it. The pure in heart are those, this pure man who stands in the sight of God perpetually. The one who, the soul that has him dwelling in it is the one that is pure. And in that, that soul is capable of knowing and enjoying of God, enjoying God, possessing God, growing in the understanding of God without the hindrance of condemnation. Without a condemnation that we feel is our duty to try to combat. You can't combat condemnation. There's only one thing that did that. You're either in death or you're in life. If, if he comes to me and lives because he believes in me, he shall not be condemned. So I hope this helped. I really do. Our concepts get in the way so many times. Our ideas, our thoughts, which so often have us right there in the center, make us the object of the whole thing, make us the ones who who either ensure it or destroy it. We either strengthen it or take away from it. I'm telling you, you can't do either one because you don't have that much power. It's not in us. So thank you guys for being uh, on tonight and listening or whenever you're uh, watching the video or listening to the audio. Thanks so much. Again, remember the conference, um, the 21st through the, uh, 25th of June, it's coming up and, uh, thank you so much. If you have any questions or comments or anything like that, you can email me at the email that I emails that I told you, uh, of previously at the beginning of the class. Love you guys. Thank you so much. Amen.